You know, normally at this time, Dr. Rydelnik is warming up in the bullpen, getting ready for your questions, but he got called in an inning earlier, and he's like all warm and ready to go right now. So, Michael, good to have you with us here on Mornings with Tom and Tommy. Always good to be with you. Hope you had a good week off last week. Yes, we did. Yeah, it was. You wonderful. didn't have the whole week off, but no, last no, no, week no, no, you had no. Monday, Monday off. Yeah, yeah, it was a really good time, and we still um, shared you with our listeners. We uh, shared some of the questions and answers that we've done in previous oh, times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. so people were able to enjoy that. But we're glad to have you back live. And let's ju- jump on in with um, with a question from Judy. She says, "Help me understand the time frame from Jesus' dedication in the temple, the escape to Egypt." and the visitation of the Magi and Herod having toddler boys killed. Speak to that. Ah, well, it seems to me that what you have first is the, the, the dedication. It seems like the, uh, the dedication would have been within 30 days. Sometime shortly after that is when the Magi visited, and that's when they would have alerted Herod, of, of their presence, and he would have known that there's been a special king born there in Bethlehem. And then uh, after that, Joseph <clears throat> receives the dream. This is 30 days after, so sometime after the 30 days with the dedication. And then uh, the Magi arrive. They Joseph has the dream. He goes to Egypt, and uh, then there's the slaughter of the innocent with, with the Lord Jesus not present. Why does... Herod choose children two years and younger, even though the Lord Jesus was younger than that, was that Herod didn't know how young or who this child was. He didn't go to Bethlehem with the Magi to figure out who the child was. And so he just figured, okay, it's an infant, so let's go two years and younger. And that's why he chose that number, to make sure he covered all uh, infants in that, in that period of time. And then he dies, Herod the Great dies, uh, while the Lord Jesus has been off to Egypt. And as soon as he dies, within a few weeks or months, uh, Joseph returns. And seeing that Archelaus is on the throne, who was one of the sons of Herod to in- inherit Herod's divided kingdom, he was the worst, probably worse than Herod the Great, if you can imagine. And so Archelaus is ruling in, Ju- ruling in Judea. The Lord Jesus then goes up with, with his parents to Nazareth again. Okay. okay, yeah, thank you so much for that. I don't uh, think it was years is what I'm right. saying. Yeah, it, it just was seems a period of very tight weeks and, and months. I, I've heard most people say that, well, he, he's got to be two years old at that point because of what Herod did mm. by choosing you know, like two years and younger. So that's why hmm. it seems like I've heard people talk about it. Well, it's got to be that in the time frame. No, I, don't, I just think that Herod didn't know how young that child was, so he... He decided to go two years and younger to to make sure that he covered his bases, so to speak. Uh, The big objection I've heard about that is that it's not recorded. There's nothing about the slaughter of the innocent in any of the documents like Josephus. Hmm. It's not mentioned in the Mishnah. Hmm. And the reason I think that's the case is it was, I call it, it it never made national news. It was only local news. Because remember, Bethlehem was a little village. There must have only been 20, 30 children under age two. It was a very just a couple hundred people. Mm. So if that was the case, it didn't make uh, a big news story. Uh, 
but it was truly reflective of the character of Herod the Great. That's the kind of paranoia. I mean, he killed his own sons and his own wife because he felt they were threatening his throne. So it certainly fits the story, the character of Herod the Great, but it was not as big a news story as it would have been had he, had he done that to all the children, two and not younger, in Jerusalem, so to speak. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you yeah. so much for that, Michael. You're hearing the voice of Dr. Michael Rydell like answering your questions here this morning. And, Michael, we have another question surrounding our memory verse, uh, which is Zephaniah 3.17. And the question is, um, you know, uh, it's the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. This is the NIV translation. He will take great delight in you and his love. He'll no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And the question is... In these different uh, versions, it seems like it translates it differently. You know, in the NIV, we just talked about in his love, he'll no longer rebuke you. The New Living Translation, with his love, he will calm all your fears. The CSB says he will quiet you in his love. So uh, with all these different translations of this particular verse, how do you kind of know what it's saying? Is there confusion in the way that it's been translated? Well, it says uh, he will be... Uh, some versions say he will be quiet in his love, mm-hmm. and the other is that he will renew you by his love. Mm-hmm. Uh, he will bring you quietness with his love. Uh, the The reason is that the Masoretic text, that, which is the received text of Judaism, let me explain what the Masoretic text is. Judaism is the the religion that preserved the Hebrew Bible. Remember, the church mostly cared about the Septuagint and the uh, the Latin Vulgate. So the Jewish community preserved the Hebrew text, and the rabbis treated uh, with the Masoretes the text as unchangeable. So, uh, so they are the ones. So the Masoretic text. That's our basic Hebrew text. It's our best Hebrew text. Uh, it's been confirmed to be a very strong accurate reflection of the original text by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, But the MT reads, he remains silent in his love. But it doesn't make sense in the context. And so that's why people are looking for alternative explanations. Uh, And uh, the Septuagint, which is a second century Greek translation and reflects sometimes variations from the, the Masoretic text that we have. I hope people are understanding that. So if, uh, the Masoretic text is from about 1000 AD. That's when it was consolidated as we have it today. But it, it's a very good. But every now and then we find something in the Septuagint that was translated 1200 years earlier that has a different reading. Mm. And and uh, the Septuagint reads, he will renew you, this love, which fits better. And the whole difference would be two letters. One is a Dalit and the other is a Resh. And they look almost identical, except that the Dalit has sort of a right angle in it, and the Resh is more curved. But ah. that's it. And so it seems that m- that some biblical scholars think that the Septuagint reflects a better reading than the Masoretic text, and as a result, 
they will take it as renews because it fits the context better and you have a very ancient rendering that that makes more sense. How's that? That's very... I think that's very helpful. Hopefully mm-hmm. that okay. helps our, our listener. And I think also it's important. I don't know what you would say to this. I think you would agree to help people understand why there's these differences is that the when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, we're talking about in its original form. Sometimes things exactly. can get lost in yeah, translation. There, there, there's about uh, 5% of the Hebrew text that we have in the Masoretic text that there's disputes about. Of that 5%, Four of the five percent are inconsequential, no change in meaning. Uh, it's the word "you" instead of "he," or, or you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. We instead of "you," or something like that. Uh, and so it's they're inconsequential in they don't change the meaning. Mm-hmm. However, about one percent, there's a difference of meaning. This would be the one percent. We are talking with Dr. Michael Rydelnik right now, taking your questions. Thank you so much for several of you who've already texted in, and and we are going um, full steam ahead. And so what's the next question, Tom? Okay, so Michael, this is a question about Flavius Josephus and asking for your thoughts. Is he accurate? Is there any danger about reading his work? Well, obviously, he's not the scriptures. Right. He's He's not inerrant, and he had a biased perspective. He was someone... That was obviously a polemicist, but one of the things that people have discovered, particularly with the archaeology of Jerusalem since 1967, was that there's been a real movement to seeing how accurate Josephus was in his stories. He certainly is always trying to make, depends on him, he's always looking to make himself look good. Mm-hmm. He's trying to make the Jewish people, he was an apologist for the Jewish people, so he tries to make them look good, but he's also trying to bring peace, and so he's trying to to tone down the wickedness of the Romans and their treatment of Jews. So he definitely has biases. But, for example, he talked about the southern steps that went up to the temple, the main entrance of the temple, and no one saw that. They didn't know where it was, and as a result, uh, they didn't know it. Well, in 1967, when Israel was able to reunite Jerusalem, they excavated the southern area of the Temple Mount, and lo and behold, what did they find? The magnificent southern steps that that Josephus described there. Now, I think that's significant because today there are people who are, there's a pastor and a couple of pseudo-archaeologists who have claimed that Jerusalem, that the temple couldn't be where it traditionally was, where the where the Dome of the Rock is today, where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is. They say, oh, no, that's not the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount's south of there in the city of David. No, it's not. The The very proof of it is Herod's, uh, Josephus said, there were these southern steps, and sure enough, they uncovered it. There it is. You know those are the steps leading up to the temple. Mm-hmm. So if you, by the way, that's accuracy of, of Herod. Uh, Herod, uh, Josephus. Josephus. Mm-hmm. That's the accuracy of Josephus, and also to be be careful about these internet writers and you know conspiracy theorists who want to say, "Oh, the archaeology of of Jerusalem is totally different than what we knew." No, no, no. It's just like what Josephus said. Okay, and for those listening who may not have ever heard of Josephus, he was an ancient historian, right? Jewish historian. A Jewish from the historian. First century. Okay. Yeah. 
And a polemicist, which I just had to look up, is a person who engages in controversial debate. You can't just throw these words out at us, oh, Dr. Well, Rydell. He, he you got to go get dictionaries. He was making an argument. Yeah. And his arg- the argument I said is he's trying to make the Jewish people look better. He's trying to make the Romans look better. But mostly he's trying to make himself look better. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Because he, he was a traitor. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right, so Michael, um, I, I've got one more question for you here. They're they're still coming in, and and, and here's our next one. And uh, this is uh, from one of our anonymous friends. Wants to ask this question about: Is there a difference in sin, for example, between coveting and homosexuality? Uh, they have a homosexual friend who stated, uh, "No more a sinner than somebody who covets." So the question is: Is all sin the same in God's eyes? Well, first of all, let me say that James says if you offend in one sin, you offend in them all. Uh, and one, one, if you break one law, you've broken them all in a sense. And all that means is that all sin separates us from God. It doesn't mean that all sin is equal. Okay, that's, mm. okay. that's something that's, that's really important to know. Uh, the Lord Jesus talks about how you tithe uh, cumin, Right, mm-hmm. uh, but you ignore the weightier matters of the law. So obviously, there are more important commandments and less important commandments. The Lord Jesus said that the one who delivered me up to you, he says to Pontius Pilate, has the greater sin. So he is saying that because of his knowledge and his responsibility, the high priest's deliverance of the Lord Jesus to Pontius Pilate was had greater guilt than what Pontius Pilate did. Now, that didn't mean Pontius Pilate wasn't guilty. Uh, greater guilt implies lesser guilt, so there's guilt there, but it means that their sins weren't exactly the same. So there, there does appear to be gradations of sin. I think what happens, though, for example, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, it talks about no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now, what that tells me is that there are some, you know, we want to make sexual immorality and homosexuality the biggest sins there are. You know, that's that's all we got. You know, that's the terrible ones. But look, the Lord Jesus includes greediness. Not uh, Paul includes greediness here. Drunkenness, verbal abuse along with sexual immorality and homosexuality. The other thing, we tend to excuse as evangelicals sexual immorality as not so bad, but homosexuality being worse. They're right there together. Mm-hmm. So we have to be really careful. Uh, some of the sins that we think aren't as big in God's gradation of sin are pretty serious, uh, more than we would like to give it credit. And we so we have to be really careful not to pick the one sin that we want to show as being the worst and put it in context to see that there, there's a whole lot of sins that go with that. Being verbally abusive or swindling people, we don't think of that as being quite as bad as sexual immorality, but boy, the, the, the Apostle Paul puts it right there together. Mm. Okay, And you and go to, go ahead, and you go to the, the seven abominations in the book of Proverbs, uh, I think five of those... Uh, abominations have to do with our speech. Mm. So, 
Okay, and so, that, that makes me think about you're going to be responsible for every careless word. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. So, Michael, if I could um, just understand where you're at with, with this, it's just so all sin separates us equally from God, but mm-hmm. in His eyes, there are different gradations. There, there are different, mm-hmm. weightier sins than others. Yeah. But we don't get to pick and choose those. God does. Is, yeah. You know, he yeah. He on. He knows the weights. I, I'm not sure. I do. Mm-hmm. I do know that. Tithing is uh, of mint and cumin is a lot less serious than sexual immorality. Mm. Uh, but di- I, I hope you notice that sexual immorality, just heterosexual immorality, is generally equal with homosexual, same-sex sin. Mm-hmm. And yet, in our culture, among evangelicals, we definitely grade homosexuality, or many people do, above sexual immor- heterosexual immorality. Mm-hmm. And all sexual immorality uh, leads to impurity. And, and so I, I'm not trying to minimize homosexuality. I'm trying to maximize all heterosexual immorality that, that they are usually put together. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's so true. Those, yeah. That's kind of pushed under the rug during these, these mm-hmm. days. Yeah, not, mm-hmm. not, not mentioned. And rampant. <laughs> yeah. Would add. So, so maybe so. that's why Peter's talking about, you know, yeah. uh, it's uh, Christopher Yuan said this um, when we interviewed him about a year ago. He said um, that uh, God doesn't say be heterosexual because I'm heterosexual. He says be holy because yes. I am holy. Exactly. You know, so he's calling us to a higher standard, much higher than the world, much higher than the church these days is to be set apart, to mm-hmm. truly be holy in all we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the You know, God doesn't define us by our sexual proclivities. He defines us by our relationship with him and our holiness. Amen. Uh, wow. So I, I think that's a way of looking at it that most people don't. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And we've got more questions here, but we're going to have to hold off on some of them because we know you have places to go. And uh, <laughs> so we'll get these next week. Thank you so much for texting us. And thank you so much, Michael, uh, for this great discussion.